Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. This is the Female Conference Part 2. Sorry that a man is introducing it, but if it's uh, any consolation, I am wearing a hot pink wig and a slinky little auger number. So um, we will just uh, briefly do an intro, a few orders of business, and then we will turn it over to our moderator, Colleen, who will be uh, talking about uh, women and relationships to philosophy and so on. So uh, as far as order of business goes, if you would like to order the um, uh, a couple of FDR books, there are the five nonfiction FDR books, On Truth, The Tyranny of Illusion, Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics, Real-Time Relationships, The Logic of Love, Compact, Edition, Everyday Anarchy, and Practical Anarchy uh, are all available for 89 bucks, including shipping if you'd like to order someone. Uh, so if you'd like to order some for... The Christmas season, if you could get your orders in sooner rather than later, that would probably be quite wise. I can ship them, of course, further out, but call me before you uh, – or send me an email or ping me before you spend the 89 bucks, and then ask me to ship them to uh, the Mir space station just because that's an extra $12. So uh, that's it. Uh, thank you so much to those who have subscribed to the uh, new – $50 a month, good Lord, that's like a $1.10 a day, a $1.20 a day perhaps. Uh, the $50 a month subscription level that gets you straight to Philosopher King, the private boards, and all of the 200 plus premium podcasts that are out there, some very, very advanced topics. So if you would like to sign up for that, just go to freedomainradio.com forward slash donations and sign up. I hugely appreciate that. And uh, it takes, uh, if you are a, uh, a very enthusiastic uh, member of the community and wish to help uh, use that resource or give me that resource to help spread the word, that is uh, wonderful. Uh, I really appreciate that. And it takes it off your mind for when to donate, which I think. And it's also planned income for you and planned income for me, which is uh, fantastic. And uh, I think that's it, other than to say the baby is coming along just fine. Uh, obviously, I've been doing quite a bit of work with an acetylene torch to make sure that uh, he's combat ready. So uh, that's uh, excellent. We um, have had our chat with the people at the hospital. We go for prenatal classes, um, how to juggle uh, babies, and uh, I think it was forks. Uh, we go in uh, late November? Yes. yes, late November. Everything's fine, um, and uh, the baby uh, is slightly above average weight, um, and they said that's mostly forehead. So I think it might be mine, which is very cool. So little chatty, yeah, the LCF, the little chatty forehead. And uh, we still don't know the gender, um, but it does seem to be a night owl and quite grabby. And, uh, and so I think, it's a, I think it's a boy, of course. Christina thinks it's a girl, um, but we, we shall see. Yeah, Christina thought it was a boy all along, but now she thinks it's a girl. And why, why has that changed? Intuition. Ah, intuition. I can't believe I waste all my time with this first principle stuff when I could just make stuff up. <laughs> I really have no idea. Anyway, so uh, the, the baby got an 8 out of 8 um, on its uh, physical exam, which is excellent. And now we have six weeks to go. And uh, it's just a matter of waiting and uh, uh, writhing around in vague discomfort for Christina and uh, for me making jokes about belugas. Anyway, so 
<laughs> that's it for uh, the news of uh, FDR. Uh, I guess one of the last thing is that we had uh, almost 400,000 media hits last month. That would be October of 2008, which translates to oh, 5 million a year if we can keep it up. That was largely due to a, a more than doubling of views of the YouTube videos. The, the True News series seems to be doing relatively well. And uh, thank you so much to the fellow who's coming up with a fancy schmancy intro. Uh, I think that's going to startle some people <laughs> to hear crazy talk coming out of a guy with a CNN logo, a suit, and uh, babbling incomprehensibilities. So uh, that's great. Uh, thank you to those who are doing the email gathering and uh, promoting the videos. It's doing some fine stuff to help with the conversation. So uh, that having been said, thank you so much for the intro. Now we turn it over to the ladies for a startlingly civilized show with far fewer um, bad jokes than normal. Uh, so, um, Colleen, if you would like to uh, uh, chair and take it away, uh, it's, uh, it's all yours. Okay, thank you. Um, so I thought we could talk today about women and their relationship to philosophy because um, we often describe what we're doing here as a multi-generational project, which to me means that women have a really important role in what we're doing because they are the primary caregivers, they have the most contact with the children, um, they teach the children to think, I mean, in the early years they, they, um, they have the potential to, to do the most to teach children about ethics and, you know, children develop their empathy through their interaction with their mother. So it's really important that we make parenting better to make people more rational in this world and because women have a primary role in that it's very uh, key to get women interested in conversations about ethics and uh, philosophy and however the fact remains that um, at least in my experience and uh, I think this is statistically true that that women tend to be less interested in discussions of philosophy and politics and those kinds of things than men do and so I thought what we could talk about today is why that is. I mean, there's been a lot of theories that have been talked about on the show. Um, are there biological brain differences? Is it an evolutionary thing? Are women more threatened by philosophy because um, it, it's more threatening to their relationships, which they value more than men? Um, are there societal pressures against it? Uh, do they not see how the abstract principles of philosophy relate to their lives. I mean, there's all these different factors that it could possibly be. So I wanted to pose some questions to the women in this conversation about what their experiences have been. And I thought, you know, anyone can, can ask a question or, or contribute an observation about that sort of thing, and we can sort of share our experiences. And, of course, if the men wanted to ask any questions, that would be great, too. Um, so... The first thing I, I kind of wanted to, I, I'll just start it off with um, this question of uh, there being biological brain differences. That's been given as an explanation for, for why women are less interested in discussions of philosophy. And um, I actually did a little bit of research before the show, so I was thinking that I found a lot of these articles. I'm not sure if anyone else has, has, uh, has found this kind of research recently that they did these neurological brain scans on men and women, and they, they sort of colored the, the different kinds of informational processing parts of the brain as white matter and gray matter. And what they found was that men have 6.5 times more gray matter than women, and women have 10 times more white matter than men. 
And what that means is that the gray matter, what men have more of, is sort of this localized processing thing where they they sort of focus on specific problems. Um, it would it, it would explain why they're more adept at things like mathematics or logical proofs, and so they'd have more skill in say. Uh, writing a book about a logical framework for evaluating ethical principles. And um, women, they have more of what's called white matter, which has to do with networking and integrating information. And so it's like connecting ideas to each other. And this would explain why a woman would be more inclined to see an idea like the state is an effect of the family, because they're more, uh, they're more skilled at relating different concepts and different ideas. So I was thinking about this, and is it, is it because that these different types of information processing, is it because that one is, is um, more valued in philosophy, or is it that we just, I mean, you can see how lots of things in philosophy, like logical syllogisms, ethics, would have to do with, with this kind of localized processing, but are there just a lot more things in philosophy that women can contribute because they have this different kind of information processing? Um, so I just, so I just wanted to open it up to like whoever, whatever um, anyone else's experiences with, with women and, and um, have you found that you, you actually think differently than most women or, or anything like that? Is there any other um, kinds of scientific research that anybody else knows of about the biological brain difference between men and women? Is it on? Uh, yeah. Hi, Colleen. It's Christina. That was a wonderful introduction. Um, I do know a very little bit about differences in, in brains between men and women, but not so much in terms of the to speak about philosophical ideas, uh, but just in terms of emotional uh, processing. And men and women process emotions differently and in different parts of the brain. And that may have something to do with um, with uh, the networking as well as the ideas. Men, I think, have uh, their, their uh, emotional processing occurs uh, lower down in the brainstem than it does for women. Um, and it's more, um, I, I think it's less sophisticated. That doesn't mean that men can't feel emotions or don't feel all the emotions, but it's, uh, but women process a little higher up. And, uh, I think that has a lot to do with their, um, their, their, their more socializing personalities and, uh, um, less to do with ideas. That's not to say again, that women can't process ideas or think about ideas, but, uh, I think, Men are much more logical in that regard than women are, and it would seem to it would seem to uh, go with the research that you have have um, have pulled out. I would also add to that that the uh, to me philosophy and psychology are not separate disciplines fundamentally, and uh, so I think one of the things that has always been limiting for philosophy is not examining why it has had so little success, right? A, a discipline that was invented. I mean, if you look at science, science was, modern empirical science was, is a couple of hundred years old. And if you look at it particularly over the last 200 years, it has completely transformed the world. Our philosophy as a discipline is 2,500 years old 
and remains a bunch of squabbling academic nonsense infighting crap. And libertarianism as a discipline is 300 years old and has not transformed the world. Um, in fact, the world has gone further away from reason and from freedom, uh, certainly in the West. So I think that one of the things that's valuable about what we're doing here is we're really trying to unite the gray matter and the white matter, so to speak, um, because we are trying to say, well, if we're right rationally, why are we not succeeding emotionally or psychologically? In, if, we, if we are correct in terms of our syllogisms, why are we failing so badly in terms of our effect? And being correct in your syllogisms doesn't do anything to free the world. But, of course, you don't want to have an effect without being right. So it's important to be right. It's important to have an effect. And what we've done is we've tried to be right as hard as we can, and we've worked hard to figure out why in the past things haven't had an effect, how we can have an effect. And that um, the, the insight that I think Christina fundamentally brought to FDR was that the success of the syllogisms is barred by the negativity in the relationships, right? That the state is an incorrect moral premise, but it succeeds because, or is, it flourishes and is so hard to uproot because the relationships which people have preclude honest conversations about the use of violence in society because family relationships preclude the honest conversations about violence within the family. Irrationality is in society not because philosophy is bad, but because religious and other kinds of irrational family structures or members attack anybody who talks about that. So I think that the, to harness uh, what, what we're talking about here in terms of male or female prowess, male and female prowess, it, to me it's a yin and a yang. We simply cannot achieve freedom without an examination of our relationships and examining our relationships without objective or syllogistical or rational truth doesn't lead us anywhere in particular. So I think that's one of the reasons why this conversation, unlike most philosophical or political conversations, or God forbid economics, why it appeals to both men and women is because we really do need to be a team or we need to bring both of these skill sets. And I know that we, there's a bit of an artificial divide and we're sort of, it's not, you know, one or the other, but I think that we, we understand that both genders need to combine their skills, abilities, and talents to uproot this. If you get one without the other, uh, I just don't think it will work. So that, I think, is one of the things that we're doing here that really is unusual, uh, different, and, and unprecedented, because uh, philosophers have often been either alienated from or hostile to women, and some of the uh, uh, more touchy-feely female aspects of things, if you think of that sort of self-help psychology that's kind of goopy, it doesn't have the rigor of syllogistical reasoning, but these two things together is unprecedented in terms of bringing these forces together to help free the world. And I always wanted to do something that was unprecedented because given that everything else hasn't worked, if we can bring uh, the male and the female together, the male and the female skills and attributes together, it is absolutely unstoppable in my opinion. And I think that's the value of taking this approach. So that's my, that's it. it for my speechifying, I <laughs> turn back over to the women. Oh, this is Lily. So um, I, it was just on my mind that it might be the word, because if I um, think about philosophy as a word, I, I picture old gray men in my mind, and I don't have any connection to it. And it's totally different um, with psychology. And 
I also, um, just an experience from yesterday, I had a lunch <laughs> and it started um, with psychology about child rearing and ended in a political fight. And I think it's connected and it's all, yeah, it, it goes from one point to another and it starts in psychology, in my opinion. Oh, I'm nervous. <laughs> So, I mean, when you say that, the um, when you hear the word philosophy, you just think of a bunch of old men with white hair. It's sort of yes. like... Because, <laughs> I mean, that was sort of for me, too. I mean, I don't... It was never portrayed to me that, that women could be philosophers. Like, it just the idea had never occurred to me when I was growing up um, until... I discovered Ayn Rand. I mean, the idea that women could be philosophers had never occurred to me. So it could be just one of the factors is that the perception of the discipline of philosophy, a lot of women don't get involved in it because of just that. But even Ayn Rand is a horrible role model because she is uh, so blind. Her emotions are so blind sometimes. And, you know, that's not really somebody you can look up to. Right, right. Like she, she wouldn't appeal to most women because of of the lack of um, of regard for emotions and that sort of thing. Like Christina was saying, women uh, they just tend to process higher on the emotional level. So that that's very true. Does this mean that we are more hit by emotions? Do we feel it more in, intense than men? Yeah. What does it exactly mean? To like have higher processing levels in regards to our emotions. No, I don't I don't think it means that we we feel that women feel their emotions more intensely than men. I, I don't think that that's it at all. I just think that in terms of how it's processed cognitively, I mean, we we, we all feel the emotions, uh, but women process the emotions a little differently than men do. Um, I think men can be more impulsive particularly around anger, that kind of thing. Um, and although that's not to say that there aren't some pretty impulsive women with their emotions as well. So uh, it's it's just, it's men and women just experience, not experience their emotions differently, but express and communicate emotions differently. What would be an example for that? I'm just curious. <laughs> That's an excellent question. Let me give me a second to think about it because I'm not <laughs> on my feet. I have, I have mommy brain. Give me just a sec. Um, anybody else can talk in the meantime. Okay. Um, I mean, I just, I was just curious um, if the women who are involved in this kind, in this conversation, um, have you, have you experienced yourself as being? different from other people, other women around you? Uh, were you interested in philosophy or things like politics before FDR more than other women? And what was the sort of reaction to that? I mean, I just, I'm interested in, in what the, the history of some of the female listeners is. Um, I experienced um, that there are not a lot of women who are, um, who would make statements or have an opinion on something because they're scared they would get attacked, I guess. And, yeah, they're just kind of slithering through everything. <laughs> and once you start talking about it, mm, yeah, it's different. 
can turn out good and bad. Candice, you were saying something? Oh, can you hear me? I'm not sure if my mic is working. Yeah, I can hear you. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, I was just going to say that before FDR, I had no interest in philosophy or politics or anything like that. It was only until after FDR. And even then, like, I still listen primarily to podcasts about relationships and psychology. And so it's taken me a while to get interested in things like, I don't know, agnosticism and atheism and free will and all that. So. So were you interested in psychology before you came to FDR and that's just sort of what drew you in or? Yeah, uh, definitely more interested in psychology. I wouldn't never have really given philosophy a, a second look, though. So, and not until after FDR. It was, I was always about psychology. Right, but you say that's sort of starting to change, or? Uh, yeah, I'd say that's starting to change. I haven't. I, it's been slow. It's been a slow process, and I wouldn't say it's still like something I'm majorly into, but. So we have any other women on the call? I was just going to uh, hello. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, just about the um, feeling different from other women thing. I definitely experienced that pretty much my entire life. Um, I don't know. I just never could connect with other women mm-hmm. very much. Like, I've had the same like, thing. Yeah, like emotionally or intellectually, I just couldn't connect with them very, very much. And yeah. Did, did that have to do with the kinds of, of things that you wanted to talk about or, or what was that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I was always like, from the time I was like three or four years old, I was always like, science, yeah, robots, let's talk about stuff. And <laughs> everyone else was like, Barbie dolls and boys and stuff like that. And there was definitely a resistance to it as well. Like the way, um, the way I, the way I was, people resisted it. Like, uh, you know, my mom, would always buy me Barbie dolls and stuff like that. And I'd be like, you know, I hate Barbie dolls. I want a science book or something like that. But she really didn't listen to that. Right. Yeah. I have a similar doll experience. I remember my mother gave me a doll as a present to my birthday when I was five. And I never played with dolls. Never. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I used to play with dolls all the time. I was a bit of a typical girly girl, I suppose. But um, I guess in, when it comes to like not being able to connect with other girls, it happened most when I was like in my earlier teens, and they all started wanting to go out drinking and clubbing every night and things, and I was just never into that sort of stuff. 
So I guess I was always different in that respect. But and I and a lot of the time we always hang out with other lads. I never. Oh, well, I had a few good girly friends, but I've always been quite different to the main crowd, so to speak. But I never had the experience of like being more interested in science or something. Like I was always preferred frilly dresses and pretty dolls and stuff like that. So I don't know. Right. Because I, I sort of. Um... My experience was that since I was somebody who who really was interested in politics or philosophy or whatever um, for most of my life, um, I only ever was close with two other women that would talk about those kinds of things with me. And they were always really like ostracized women. Like they, they didn't get any sort of advancements from, from, guys i mean they never got asked on dates and they were really just very much disliked by the other people um in the school and not not that that has anything to do with what they were talking about maybe it does maybe it doesn't but those were the only women that i've ever experienced that they they would talk to me about things like politics or or philosophy or even psychology on this on a more principled scale on more than on beyond just the sort of pop psychology thing, right? Um, so I, I was just wondering if we had women, other women like that in the conversation who who sort of felt themselves as being very different in that way and were always sort of drawn to this. But I guess it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it's interesting to me that most of the women here are are just interested in psychology. It was the comment I was going to make earlier. Uh, women tend to tend to be drawn to psychology and self-help and emotional stuff. And I think men are drawn to philosophy, which is more about ideas and basic principles. And, and I, that may have something to do with the brain differences that you were describing earlier on. I mean, I certainly can't comment on that. I don't have any experience in that, in that area. Uh, but just in terms of, uh, just in terms of what we know with numbers, women populate the psychology boards, you know, you look at Dr. Phil's show and it's all women look at all Oprah show. It's all women. Uh, you get maybe a handful of men in those audiences. Um, and Steph is doing a show on FDR and, and, um, you know, it's great to see that there are women around, but it is predominantly males who listen and uh, participate. Well, but that depends on the topics, right? Sure. I mean, for sure, the psychology stuff, I mean, you, you could say broadly speaking that philosophy is about cr the criticisms of, of others, whereas self-help is about the criticism of the self. So you could almost look at it like men prefer combat and women are self-critical. I mean, you could self-critical. You could take these, uh, in a sense, stereotypes, though that I think they're founded in some truth, and take them to pretty wide, wide areas. But um, I think that um, men are more used to combat, and women are more raised for compromise. And compromise requires a, a greater degree of empathy, of you know, ideally uh, empathy, psychological understanding, and so on. Um, whereas there's a lot of aggression, outward aggression in, uh, uh, in men, right? And so we've not had to my memory. And if any, if, if anyone else can remember, we've not had, I mean, this is very interesting when you think about it, we've not had mm. a single female trawl on the FDR boards in two years, two and a half years. And I almost never get these kinds of hot headed, aggressive, emails from 
from women. Uh, but but the, the trolls and the really difficult, uh, aggressive, manipulative, uh, they, they tend to be on the male side. Uh, in fact, I mean, pretty much exclusively on the board. Uh, and so I, th I think that this idea that philosophy is some sort of is a kind of ritual combat, whereas uh, psychology is a kind of internal confrontation, uh, I think is 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 quite interesting, and I think does does something. I, I I'm sure that the interest in psychology is an effect, and philosophy of the different genders is an effect of that. But um, you know, men like to be right, and women like to connect. I mean, to to put it in very <laughs> simplistic terms, uh, that does seem to men men like to be right, and they like to dominate. Uh, and philosophy is a great way of doing that if you are a pencil-necked intellectual, <laughs> right? And you can't win in the rugby field or the, the football field. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, men like to dominate and, and live in this pecking order. And women like to connect and uh, and live in a sort of relationship soup, a more horizontal compromise situation. So to me, it makes sort of sense that women would not be drawn towards black and white, right and wrong kinds of interactions. But... Uh, it makes sense to me that women would be drawn more to communication, expressive, compromise, and intimacy kinds of situations, which, you know, to me, again, I think we need them both to really make progress in the world. Uh, but, I mean, the, and that's why I think the contributions of the women to this community have been just completely stellar. Uh, somebody said, uh, it seems to me that psychology would, uh, would use the argument from effect while philosophy uses the argument from morality. I think... I think that's very interesting, but uh, I would say that I, I would not underestimate the degree to which women are subject to the argument for morality. Oh, yeah. I mean, sorry, <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you, oh yeah, comes from the sisterhood uh, of, the, uh, of the traveling red room, so why don't you mention that? No, honestly, I mean, we're always told you have to be good, and who defines the good is the person that you have to uh, that you have to that you have to obey. Um, I think this might be true for a lot of women. I'm, I can't say that it's true for all of them. Certainly, it has been true for me. Um, do as you're told. Be 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 polite. Be nice. Uh, don't uh, be aggressive. Um, smile all the time. Um, those kinds of things and, um, you know, obey your parents and obey your teachers and he who defines those rules are the people that you have to, that you have to, uh, that you have to conform to. But that's again, morality without principles and morality, not based on any, uh, you know, principles as Stefan has defined them. So do you think that, um, because, I mean, like what you were saying, that, that women are taught more to conform. Um, and I do think that there might be some natural reasons why, why women are more prone to conformity than men. But do you think that it's, it's sort of also inflicted on them? I would say that, that it's by, I mean, it is inflicted upon them. I mean, we have these natural tendencies, which, of course, are exploited. Right. The children's natural tendencies to respect their elders and to be dependent on their parents and to have this attachment to their parents is often exploited by parents. I think that these tendencies that we have as genders are both exploited and exacerbated. Right. So because women feel maybe 10 percent or 20 percent worse than men when criticized about interrelations, interpersonal skills, people swarm that and they widen that gap. Right. In the same way that a man who reaches or a boy who reaches for compromise or more participatory games 
um, rather than, you know, win-lose combat war games. Uh, so maybe boys have a 10 or 20 percent more, uh, more of a desire for these kind of hierarchical win-lose games. But any boy who suggests something else, like it, it quickly becomes like a hundred zero because people rush in to, to extend and exacerbate these, uh, these gaps, if that makes any sense. So I think that there are some innate differences for sure, but I think that society uh, does, does a lot of that. I mean, particularly dysfunctional families cannot uh, e- even remotely stay together unless there are, there's one or two or more people and they're usually women who are the compromisers, right? Who are the mediators who constantly repair these the sharp and, and uh, broken interactions and who, you know, will like, you know, the, the, the typical thing where you have the, the bullying dad and the mom who just kind of meekly goes along with it. And so I think that the natural tendencies that we have, which are probably not that great, uh, are really exacerbated uh, by societal pressures and exploitation. And it would be fascinating, I think to see what would happen in a society where those kinds of things weren't necessary for exploitation and to maintain corrupt power structures. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really interesting because, I mean, something I've always sort of wondered is, is the degree to which the differences are natural and to the degree to which they're exacerbated by the society. And, um, like for instance, I always I always kind of got this sense um, when I would bring up conversations of more depth in, in with women, um, whether they are to do with philosophy or, or ethics or whatever. I didn't get the sense that they were just simply bored by them or, or whatever like that. I mean, that's part of it, but it's like I always got the sense that there was a real conscious avoidance of those kinds of topics. I just uh, I certainly do remember when I was a kid, I really enjoyed those hierarchical games, but I also really enjoyed sitting and chatting, you know, and uh, and I found that you just kind of align yourself to the path of least resistance when you're a kid, because that's we're all designed to do that. And so, I, you know, whenever I would say, let's sit and chat, people were like, oh, that's gay, man, <laughs> you know, and and, you know, when when British boarding school kids are calling you gay, it means something. But um, so so it's not it's it's so, you know, maybe maybe a little bit more. I wanted to play the hierarchical games and a little bit less. I wanted to sit and chat, but it quickly became 100 zero because uh, for fear of of rejection or bullying or that kind of thing. So, uh, again, and that's what we're trying to do here is to, you know, have the men feel and the women syllogistically work. Right. I mean, so that that we can sort of resurrect who we would have been in the absence of all of this ridiculous pressure to go, you know, one way or the other. Um, yeah, I just know that as a kid, um, the way I thought and acted was definitely rejected as not feminine. Um, like, it just wasn't something that girls do, you know? Right. Like, discussing how the world worked and stuff just wasn't a girly thing to do. For me, it was a result that I tend to hang out more with men <laughs> who were interested in those things. In high school, for example, I remember. Yeah. I personally have a tough time... Um, hello? Go ahead. Uh, oh, <laughs> I personally have a tough time with those um, fight-and-flight situations. 
where you have this um, overwhelming um, feeling of adrenaline. I really have a tough time standing this um, this adrenaline. And yeah, I'm working on that. <laughs> and I think it's um, probably the same with a lot of women that this is the reason why they tend to um, compromise a lot. But I know that it's um, that you have to have a little bit of a black and white thinking about what is good and bad for the future. I don't know. <laughs> right. For me, I mean, I had those same kind of... If, uh, if there's a pause in the conversation, I would also uh, like to mention that, uh, uh, again, I can only speak about this from a man's perspective, but I read a book when I was in therapy. My therapist uh, suggested a book called Man's Fear of Women, and uh, I found that to be very helpful, and it went over a lot of the, uh, the primitive fears that men have about women. And there they seem to be two major ones, and it is uh, uh, the authority of the mother and the sexual rejection of the woman. Uh, and I found that uh, uh, certainly in my own experience, and I remember reading a very poignant, uh, in Marlon Brando's autobiography, he talks about his fear uh, of, of women. And I think, I think that's a real shame. I mean, certainly if, if men and women can't get together, the world can't be free, because I mean, can't, can't even be effective parents, right? So I think that... My experience was that women were scary, uh, and uh, there is this um, sitcom cliche of the woman who is irrational and emotional and talks a mile a minute, talks herself in and out of particular states of, of thinking or feeling, while the man just kind of stares there bewildered and doesn't have a clue what's going on. Uh, I've seen this in a number of different uh, sitcoms, and I'm sure you've, you've seen the same kind of thing. Uh, it's that sort of bumbling romantic heroine with the baffled and distant kind of pride and prejudice dude. And um, uh, the, the, what is perceived of as the, the irrationality or the volatility of women uh, is something that is alarming to, to a lot of men. So, I mean, I've sort of worked through a lot of that kind of stuff and realized that there's no need to be afraid of women uh, if you just surrender to a particular woman. Uh, it just becomes that much easier. Um, but uh, uh, so, uh, you know, if you're just Poland to your wife's Wehrmacht, uh, it actually works out very well. But uh, does, that, does that work the other way as well? I mean, is, is there a fear? Well, I guess if there are men in the conversation who have that fear uh, of women, that's sort of one thing. It, it, it was hard for me. It was hard for me to, to end up just looking at women as, as people. I mean, it's just hard to to get to that, um, and that was uh, some focus of, of the early parts of my therapy. Uh, and I had a female therapist, which of course helped a lot. Um, but uh, other men who have this fear uh, of women, or, or other women who would like maybe to talk about if there's a corresponding fear of men, uh, that to me would be an interesting topic. But I certainly don't want to hijack uh, just because there was a pause. I don't want to hijack what anyone else is saying. But that to me was something that I had to spend quite a lot of time and uh, energy working on. Yeah, I'm kind of interested if any other men on this call have have sort of experienced that, or if they've um, if they've worked through something similar to that. Well, I can definitely vouch for what Steph is saying that um, um, that fear is there um, for me for sure. Um, 
although uh, I wouldn't say that um, I have a, a clear answer for it yet, but um, it's definitely an issue. Is it is it sort of an issue of of like um, because of the experience with the mother that you you perceive women as as really volatile and dangerous, but on the other hand you feel like you need one in order to you know have sex or have a family or that sort of thing. So it feels like sort of a a trap or something like that. No, it it was for me. It never felt like an impossible situation. It was just sort of. Um, um, something to be avoided. Um, um, I mean, a lot of it uh, obviously has to do with my own mother, um, but um, uh, I don't. I don't think I ever felt sort of the frustration. That, that you're you're describing like you have to have this thing but you can't because it's too scary right it's always been sort of just um um you know like when you're choosing um sort of activities or hobbies in your life you kind of pick which ones are um Challenging, but not death-defying, if that makes any sense. Right? So. Okay. Anybody Anybody else? Uh, that was just a topic I came up with about uh, fear of, uh, uh, of women. Um, but uh, if anybody else uh, wanted to talk about anything else or that topic or women's uh, fear of men, I think that would be, uh, uh, that would be interesting. But uh, go for it. Um, I'll, I'll just say like on, on my end, um, I have experienced that some men are, are, they treat women like they're, they're really afraid of them and they treat women like they're irrational and they're going to snap any moment. Um, like you'll be involved in a, in a small disagreement with them or whatever. And you just sense that they're getting kind of really nervous about it and, and sometimes they'll joke around and say things like, okay, geez, you know, don't, don't snap, you know, don't, don't go postal on me or anything. And it's like, um, I have always experienced that as, as a, as pretty insulting, um, before I came to FDR and like, I understood why that was like, you know, obviously, you know, some men are just projecting their experience with their mother onto other women. Um, I did experience that as kind of insulting um, to be treated as if I was like a ticking time bomb. I was totally scared by men. Um, can anybody hear me? I think I'm. Yep. Oh. We can hear. Um, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> and I think my problem was that I didn't didn't have the tools. Um, I just wasn't taught the tools how to. Um, 
like basic fears like they're going to kill me or something or that I um, have to agree to everything they say <laughs> and yeah so you have to build up the, the tools to defend yourself for a while it takes a while I don't know am I the only person <laughs> I was uh, I was afraid of uh, of uh, men and boys I guess uh, when I was when I was younger and and it was more it never had anything to do with ideas uh, again I was never socialized that way I was never raised to I mean there was never any discussion about politics or ideas in my home around my kitchen table or even when we had company over I mean the conversations were always so superficial and uh you know, when my mother would, would sort of talk about me and my sister and describe our characteristics, yeah, we were smart, but smart really didn't mean intelligent and, and independent thinkers and creative thinkers. It's just, you know, good students kind of thing, but always about being pretty and being uh, attractive and being, you know, good girls, that kind of thing. So when when it came to to men, it was always, from my perspective or from my point of view, it was, am I pretty enough? Am I uh, attractive enough? Those kinds of things. Is he going to find me not so much interesting, but pretty? And that caused me to have anxiety around men. I've definitely had the same fears. Like, the attraction thing definitely was a big thing for me, like how pretty I am and stuff. Because I always assumed that men found those things like a lot of value in those things so I thought like well if I'm not pretty or something then I'm just not of any value to a man I never had that no not the the out how you look or something no just I don't know um, in my past the most men were just violent, violent creatures <laughs> And the only people who didn't attack me were women, I thought. Looking back, it's different. I think I was actually less afraid of men than I was of women. Um, to me, because, I mean, when when men got angry or whatever, like, they, they would maybe explode or, or, you know, yell at you or that sort of, they'd get aggressive. But... Um, that sort of thing you could sort of avoid, you know, it's, it's like easier to, to see that. But with women, I just sort of felt like if they, if they became hostile towards you, um, it would be so subtle and murky. Like it's, it was really hard for me to, to understand how they operate and how they're, they're, you know, they use, um, they use social ostracism more than they use, outright aggression or they use gossiping or that sort of thing and to me it was just so much harder to keep track of like it was so much harder to read them that I was more nervous around women than I was around men can I interject for just a moment here guys sure sure um, I've just been following along just recently here on the chat and um, I think that for me I've always been um, very easy to get along with women more than it is to get along with men um, but at the same time, I have a tremendous fear that deals more with the attraction level. The more attractive a woman is, the harder it is for me to deal with them. Just, and I think this is probably what, along the lines of what somebody was saying, is that, that 
makes a big difference. If you feel attracted to that person, then I guess it's nerves or whatever that makes you, you know, trip all over yourself. Does that make sense? I know oh, here on the chat. That's interesting, actually. Because right now, the way at, at, at work, I'm an architect, and I work with a lot of female interior designers. And we get along really well. Like We're always going out to lunch. We're always doing things like that. Um, but still, like I, I still have that problem. Like I don't understand why. And I get along really well with my girlfriend. We're very close. And I just don't understand. I, I guess I still have that fear of attractive women. And I can see from the board here, a couple of people are also saying that they feel petrified by beautiful women, too. Um... Uh, I think for me, I, uh, my, my dad used to always say that my mom was the smartest woman that he'd ever met and that she was smarter than him, but when, they w but when he would tell me separately, but then when they were together, uh, he would yell at her for being stupid or lazy. So that, that kind of, it, it did mess with my idea of, of what women were like. Oh, that could totally mess with it. I mean, your father is, I mean, at least for me, my dad was, you know, the example of how I wanted to be, you know, to be a man. I looked to, to him for that kind of um, direction. So if he didn't really trust women, then it would be something that would follow on me, you know, that I would sort of pick up on that. So I can understand where that comes from. I just wanted to mention, too, that um, in, in, in my thinking, which has nothing to do with the truth, but just in the way that I, I think, um, the, the men who have been the most rejected by their mothers when the men were boys, of course, tend to be the men who are most frightened of, uh, of beautiful women. Uh, and uh, again, that's, that's just a theory. I mean, maybe it fits with you, maybe it doesn't. Uh, and the reason for that, of course, is that... Um, uh, to a child, all mothers, like when you're a kid, your mother is uh, beautiful. I mean, it's the essence of beauty uh, and desirability in terms of intimacy and connection and touching and, and feeding and so on. And so um, des desire, which is rejected by a mother, desire for uh, union with and intimacy with your mother, if it is rejected by your mother when you are uh, a baby, a toddler and so on, if you are rejected by your mother – then what happens is desire becomes mingled with fear in your, I mean, it's right down there in your central cortex, right down in your uh, hypothalamus. And uh, when desire then is, is, um, is united with fear, uh, because of the history of maternal rejection, uh, I would say that when you are in the presence then of a woman that, who you desire, and maybe that's physical beauty or maybe that's something else, but then desire and fear uh, for the feminine uh, become united uh, within your mind, uh, or within your, it's really within your neurological system, the two simultaneous uh, feelings of obviously extreme ambivalence and so on. So, uh, so that would be a sort of, uh, I just sort of <laughs> float that out there. I don't know if that uh, it fits with the other people's uh, thoughts or experience, but uh, uh, let me know. Yeah, Steph, that makes a great, a great load of sense. Um, I feel that, uh, that um, when it comes to my my relationship with my mother, my mother is a strong single parent, um, and 
I, I guess we have a good relationship. So I think that translates to me being able to work with women really well. The thing about the rejection, though, uh, what you're saying is I spent a lot of time uh, being rejected in my life uh, from beautiful women. And I felt always that it was unnecessary because I, I feel you know, that I'm a, a good person and I, I have strong things about me, strong qualities about me. So the fear of beautiful women, I think, has to go along with or is caused by the rejection that I had as experienced throughout my life with beautiful women. Uh, sorry, to, to me, I mean, unless I missed something, that just seems a little circular to me. So are you saying that okay. you did not experience rejection from your mother when you were younger? Or That's hostility or distance or, or alienation? Quite the opposite. She was very affectionate, very loving, um, very supportive, certainly, of, of everything I've done. But I, what I was saying, maybe this will clarify it a little bit, is that I think my fear of beautiful women comes more from being rejected by beautiful women, not by my mother. So, like, if I was gonna, if I saw a pretty woman and I asked her out, I'd get rejected, and so the rejection was more from other women, not from my, not from my mother. Does that make sense? It, it doesn't make sense to me, but again, that doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. It just, it just doesn't make sense to me, because when we end up in a situation of repetitive rejection, it usually has a very early cause. If that makes any sense, it's not the okay. beauty or non-beauty of a woman that causes the rejection. It is her nature. Now. Um, sometimes, or you could say there might be a vague correlation between external attractiveness and a necessary kind of coldness, uh, simply because you will get a lot of people, uh, if you're a beautiful woman, you will have a lot of men approaching you, so you need to get that a bit of haughtiness or distance, uh, uh, so just to sort of get through the day. But uh, if you are in a situation where you are being repetitively rejected by women, uh, that would seem to be, obviously you're an intelligent fellow, that would seem to be a lack of pattern recognition, if that makes sense, about the types of women you should be approaching. Because, again, it's not the physical exterior. It's the internal uh, character, uh, the personality of the woman who is rejecting you. And so if you are blind to that kind of rejection and you keep, in a sense, beating your head against the wall over and over, then either you don't have the intelligence to do that kind of pattern recognition and stop approaching women who will reject you, which I don't believe for a moment, or there's some earlier uh, psychological repetition compulsion at play, if that makes sense. Okay. It does make sense. I'm just trying to think about it a little bit here. Um, I think you're right about the pattern rejection thing. Um, you know, it's certainly hard to think about, but then at the same time, I don't know. I mean, this is where um, I, I'd like to throw it out to you guys because to get the opinions from other people is definitely very helpful because uh, I, I, I guess it's you need the distance from, from the whole situation to really understand it a little bit. But um, for me, I've always seen things that since I've been able to get along with women, I felt that I've always had a foot in the door, you know, like I've been better able to understand what they like and things like that. So I would feel that I could go after somebody who is a little bit more attractive than say my, that should be in my level. Um, and I've had some success with it, but I guess you're right. I mean, I, I haven't seen the pattern and, um, you know, when I did see the pattern is when I felt a lot better about my life. I don't know if that makes any sense. 
Well, it does, and I, I, I don't want to um, displace the the women's conference with a dude chat, and perhaps we could talk about this another time uh, because okay. I think it's very interesting. Um, uh, this this thing, and you're certainly not alone in feeling intimidation in the face of attractive members of the opposite sex. So uh, I want to turn it back to the women, but maybe you and I could uh, could chat about it sometime because it certainly is is a common uh, issue. We'll have a. Uh, uh, a whiny dude beta male fest or something like that. <laughs> and we'll talk about it some sure, more. But, Steph, sorry, let me turn it back to Colleen to, uh, uh, to, to keep moderating. Okay. Um, well, um, another thing I was thinking of, and this has been, this has sort of been mentioned on FDR, um, this question of, of why don't women get involved in things Discussions, not just of philosophy, but of maybe um, more scientific approaches to psychology and and raising children. Is it because the the consequences of not doing so are not are not really apparent to them? Uh, do is it because you know because of women women are more inclined to perpetuate the status quo because there's less social resistance to that. Um, so is it sort of like they don't experience consequences for not examining their, their ethical life or that sort of thing. And, um, the consequences that they do experience are in fact always, almost always negative, um, in regards to what women are more interested in. I sometimes, um, experience talks about politics um, like a major hiding behind the bushes. Um, so I don't really see the purpose um, of starting a conversation about it unless the other person starts. And this is what Steph said a lot of times, that it's, if somebody is not willing to talk about his or her upbringing in some sort of sense, so that you can figure out um, why he came to um, his opinion in the moment. It's a waste of time, not a lot of times. Right, because, I mean, I don't know, maybe perhaps we look at the political discussions that a lot of men get into as sort of just becoming uh, pissing contests that don't really go anywhere, right? <laughs> what is it really nice fight. <laughs> Yeah. Is that I mean is that the perception that that it just it's it's kind of pointless that sort of thing? Yes, if I see two men just fighting about an, a political issue, I'm like, man, doesn't make sense. Nobody will change his opinion and so what's the purpose of interacting with them? Right, that makes sense. That does make sense. It's just they just fight because they, they like to fight. It's not that they want to change anything. At this point, I would leave anyway, I guess. You know, it's interesting because I, um, I, I was interested in politics and I was uh, not that I ever bought a you know, political science uh, textbook or anything like that, but I, I, I would read, um, I would read uh, newspaper articles on... on uh, 
international news uh, relating to politics and, and subscribed to uh, the national magazine here in Canada, Maclean's, and I would pick up Time magazine and just read about um, read about politics, but I never really had discussions uh, about politics with anybody, men or women. Um, and that I just, I mean, I'm just commenting that uh, I find that rather interesting about myself at this point. I don't know if anybody else had those experiences where they, they have an interest in something, but maybe um, they, I, I, and again, sort of doing some self-reflection, I'm not sure that it was, that I had any fears about talking about it. I just, I don't think the conversations ever came up and that could have been that I never brought them up. Um, but I don't know what other people's experiences are around that. Yes, I also read the newspapers every day, and so in case the uh, conversation would come up, I were able to say something, but I got never involved in discussions or something, right? Yeah, the same, yeah. Right, I wonder, that's interesting, I wonder why that is, like... I mean, it just, it it would seem natural in in any other instance to bring up what you were interested in to other people but it was just it was just specifically politics that you didn't discuss with other people um religion to some extent as well i did have a a good friend that was studying uh religion in uh, in university um and we would have occasional discussions about religion but it's interesting i mean i grew up going to church pretty much every sunday uh, as a child and going to sunday school i have never once read the bible um, I was given, and when I was a very young, before I could, I mean, I was able to read, but it was a, it was a children's Bible. I was six years old, and it was far too complicated for me to read at the age of six. I remember just looking at the pretty pictures. Um, so I didn't think that I was ever in a position to really talk about religion. I didn't know very much about the different religions. Um, I mean, I couldn't tell you at that time the difference between Catholicism and Greek Orthodox uh, religion or um I knew a little bit about Judaism, but I didn't know a lot about religion. So I didn't, maybe I felt like I didn't, I couldn't have an informed discussion about uh, different religions. And, and I guess even <laughs> to the point of talking about agnosticism or atheism. But you got it quick. Oh, yeah, the argument about knowledge. <laughs> At one point, you just uh, discover that you don't know enough. And then they get you. Uh. And it certainly has been my experience that women have, and again, this is a gross generalization, but but women have a private arena of knowledge. Because men's arena of knowledge is combat-based so often, so, so they're not shy about it, right? And of course, the lack of knowledge doesn't stop most men. But uh, it has been my experience that if you can gain the trust of a woman to get into this private world of knowledge... Uh, there's some brilliant stuff to, to be said, uh, the brilliant stuff that the women can say. But, you know, it's a d- traditional thing where at a dinner party of, of men and women, the, the men are arguing and the women are getting food, right? <laughs> I mean, it is that uh, almost uh, Old Testament uh, Hasidic Jew kind of thing. And um, I have found that you get some amazingly brilliant stuff. And we've, of course, heard this in this in this show as a whole, uh, amazingly brilliant stuff out of women. But it has to be you have to sort of get to the inner sanctum uh, of, of female knowledge and thoughts and experience. And it doesn't usually come out 
in uh, in a sort of general combat or advers- adversarial or debating kind of uh, scenario. That has absolutely been the case in 100% of the instances that I've encountered. I have a general uh, question for, for everybody who's listening in today. Um, how many people actually have um, in-depth discussions about you know, very important topics, religion, psychology, philosophy, um, self-worth, with with their with their friends in a social setting in a social group because certainly I mean I'm trying to think back to before I met staff and the kinds of conversations that I had with friends that I had with uh, um, with uh, boyfriends that I had with family members and certainly they weren't all completely superficial they weren't all completely about you know how's the weather and you know what are we getting each other for christmas kind of thing or you know well you know what's the latest trend in lipsticks um and, and how best to practice french kissing maybe that's a, a fantasy of yours darling sorry i'll stop contributing <laughs> but certainly you know, I and I realized I, I knew that there was something missing from my conversations and my interactions with people. Um, and again, my you know could be my my own doing for not bringing things up. Um, but I, I was curious about what other people's experiences are around this issue. Um, mine mine was kind of almost the opposite, where I. I kind of brought that sort of stuff up almost to like a fault to the point where it would annoy everybody. And I actually, I mean, I think if, if there is a reason why women or anybody doesn't bring those kinds of things up in, in public, it's exactly because of what I experienced, which was, um, just not very many friends, not very popular and, and that sort of thing. And, um, it is. It all. It always is really uncomfortable when you bring up a topic like that in a group setting or with friends, and there's just like a stony silence or an indifference. I mean, that's a really tough thing to experience. And just because I've I've liked to talk about those things all the time, it's it's something that I experienced quite a bit until I just sort of had one or two close friends. Yeah, with my one and two close friends, I have the same deep conversations, but I don't bring up hot issues uh, on a a dinner table at somebody else's place I don't know well. Mm. I think you're right. There's a time and a place to bring up a conversation. And... um, you know, when you when I'm especially when I'm around coworkers, I tend to avoid talking about political issues, but inevitably they come up, and I just I've gotten to the point where I've just I'll say it because I feel like I have enough to back up what I say. So if somebody asks me, you know, why do you, are you going to vote or are you going to do this, and I'll give them my response, and I feel like I can back it up. But as for my core group of friends, I'm lucky that my core group of friends all pretty much. think the same way so we have no problem in bringing these things up Um, 
my experience is more like Pauline's is that I used to bring up all these important these these issues like atheism and uh, and politics and things when other people wanted to talk about movies or something and I just saw them as superficial and shallow and uh, I'd get I'd get uh, into a lot of arguments that way but that was what I wanted to do was uh, get into arguments with people make them feel uncomfortable. Right. Whenever they make a statement that where I cannot stay silent, I bring it up too. For example, like, like yesterday at my lunch when she started talking about child rearing and she asked me if I would um, believe in spanking and I exploded. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. I don't care about the company anymore. But I, I don't seek situations like this. To me, the, the whole the child rearing issue with women is is really interesting because, I mean, what we talk about a lot here is parenting and, and how, you know, one should treat their children. How should you teach them about ethics and that sort of thing? And I think like the women in the conversation are, are sort of more interested in topics like that. But it's interesting in today's society, um, women don't sort of. They're, they're never blamed for um, bad parenting. That, I mean, that's just my observation. It's always like if you watch something like Dr. Phil or whatever, it's always the fathers that are blamed. It's always the fathers that are, are more violent. And if the women do something wrong or if the women are violent and, you know, and they, get, they get the whole sort of like weepy um, thing going on and everyone's so forgiving of mothers. So I don't, I don't think women really experience so much negative consequences from bad parenting as men do. Well, I think that, I mean, I think that's an excellent observation. And I think that um, it also ties into this idea of the, you know, the supportive sisterhood that um, to, to criticize another woman is, is breaking the worldwide estrogen bond of non-criticism or something like that. Uh, and it is highly, highly confrontational uh, for uh, a woman to criticize another woman. And uh, uh, so I think you're right. And I, I think that, unfortunately, that that robs women of a lot of important feedback. Uh, I mean, to me, it's really cruel to, to not give somebody feedback. You know, it's like if you go to the doctor and you're smoking four packs a day and he says, great, I'm being supportive of your smoking habit. He's not actually helping you very much. In fact, he's doing a lot of harm to you. And I think that this sort of unspoken thing that to criticize another woman is is explosive uh, it, it actually makes women appear much more fragile than women actually are. Women are incredibly tough, in my experience, but the, the, the women treat each other often like there's these, these incredibly fragile Fabergé eggs or something, and, and we can only be supportive. We can never be critical. And I think that is, um, uh, I think that that robs women of a lot of the free market give and take of, of feedback that is really essential to, to getting any kind of improvement uh, in life. Right, because if you protect, you know, people from the negative consequences of their behavior, it's only going to exacerbate it. And so I think that's that's a really interesting thing um, that I think is an obstacle for women getting involved in really serious, objective questions about ethics and parenting. Because um, if their children turn out bad or whatever, you know, they they're completely protected from the consequences of that because mothers are seen as completely invulnerable to criticism.
And I think all that means is that there's just angry moms out there, right? I mean, nobody likes to be criticized, obviously, right? It's not, it's not fun. Although I guess it can be if it's done in the right way. Nobody really likes it, but it is just one of these essential things that you need uh, in life. To, so it, it, if, if, if men are afraid to criticize women, it's because, you know, every time they would criticize their moms or whatever, or their dads would criticize their moms, they'd get the, the rage, the withdrawal, the huffiness, the tears, the manipulations, the, the dissociations, and so on. And, uh, uh, and I'm sure the same thing would be true of women, but um, I think that it is one of the most disrespectful things you can do to any group or any individual is to no longer give them honest feedback. I mean, this happens to me in the chat room and in, even in conversations. I try to bring something across to someone and they just refuse to listen and they don't, uh, they don't give any sort of feedback. Like there's a guy in the chat room today who was saying that, uh, oh, the psychologizing that goes in here, you know, people bore me to tears when they do that. And I was just saying, well... That's kind of cruel, kind of cold, right, to say that, that people striving to be honest and to understand themselves bores you to tears. And, and he was just defensive. I mean, oh, I just meant it in this context or, you know, it's not. And then to me, it's like, OK, so I'm not going to give you any more feedback because it's not worth it. Right. And and that's a very that's when I lose respect for someone. Uh, it doesn't mean it's permanent, but it just means in that situation. And by the way, that's not happened with that's not what happened with the guy I was talking to earlier. Just, so, so I think that it's hugely disrespectful uh, to women uh, to not give them that kind of feedback and to not challenge women with um, uh, the assumptions that they have. Uh, but I think also with the recognition that it is very alarming and counter to what women are raised to be in so many situations, which is you know conduits and and uh, lubricants, uh, social lubricants and. Uh, uh, and and food providers and so on, right? I mean, things you know, the the seen and not heard kind of stuff. Uh, so I think it's important to to give the respect to women to to criticize them, but also to recognize and be sensitive to the fact that it's more alarming for women than it is for for some men who are a little more more used to the hurly burly. But uh, I think f- finding that line is really really important. And why is it this way? Because I experience it the same. It's really like you're doing something really, really bad if you start criticizing or um, questioning the opinion of another woman in a circle of w- women. Is it because we, are, we need other women? Something Stone Age I don't, related? I don't know. I think it's more socialized. Um, but I'm not going to try an answer as to why, because that's a <laughs> that's woman on woman interaction. So I'm not going to presume to cross the circle, so to speak. I'll I'll turn it over to the other women. If they found that criticizing other women is is volatile, why uh, why is that? The one thing that is true, and and I think it's not just uh, something about criticizing women, but it's about criticizing parenting. Um, you, the, the 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 comment that always comes back is, well, this is my child. And I will do what I want. Um, and uh, how dare you? You haven't walked a mile in my shoes. Or, um, yeah, I have a difficult yeah. child. You don't understand. Um, those are the kinds of things that, that come back. But definitely criticizing one's parenting uh, or someone's parenting, whether it's uh, a man or a woman, it garners a lot, of, um, a lot of hostility. Let me just uh, sorry, just... I just, I just wanted, since we, we, it's always easy to work with a specific example, and this is a minor one, but I thought it was actually quite important um, that this is with, with Christina and I. Well, like when we were at your mom and dad's place one day, and your mom was saying that, oh, so and so used to be married to this woman, this guy who was an alcoholic and a, a gambler and this and that, a really dysfunctional guy. She left him, she got remarried, and now she's perfectly happy and has a great marriage. 
right? And you said, psychologically, that can't really be the case. She can't leave a totally dysfunctional marriage, relatively quickly get married again, and have a great and happy marriage, right? So you would, and that's not, you know, you're not saying up is down, black is white, and God is evil, right? That was a, uh, a, a relatively minor correction of a certain perspective that your mom had. And this is not something that is foundational or catastrophic you weren't you know yelling at her oh you witch you destroyed my childhood or anything like that you were you were giving her a fairly mild correction on somebody who wasn't even a close family friend right uh, about her perception to do with that and of course you remember what happened right oh the hostility the agitation my mother got physically agitated and basically said i don't want to talk about this anymore and the whole room chilled yeah the, the, then there was this cold silence <laughs> That is interesting. That's um, I have. I mean, I've experienced the same thing. Um, the most mm. common defense of, of women that I've noticed, or maybe this is just my experience, if you criticize them, it's like this whole like martyr defense, like you know, oh, I do so much and I slave away, and if I'm if I'm failing in any any way, it's only because I'm so spread thin over everything else, and and that sort of thing, and. Um, I'm not really sure why that is, though. I mean, has anyone else experienced that kind of thing? I think um, I think why I think why this happens is because when you do start to when you do start to offer criticism or or cor- correction, what it does is it shakes the whole fundamental basis of one's philosophy, whether the individual is aware of it or not. So if you start to criticize one thing, then it really shakes up. Um, their their ideas of who they are and and uh, what kind of parent they are, and it's extremely uncomfortable. People don't want to go there. Oh, and um, this this your mother who was you know hypersensitive to and hostile towards criticism. Once when we were going for a brunch with your parents, your mom came into the parking lot and there were you know she gave you three zings you know right off the bat right boom how come why why don't you get a haircut you know boom. Uh, you look cold. Why? Why don't you keep a jacket in your car? Boom. Uh, why don't you wear makeup? Because it was Sunday, right? Or something like that. Why don't you wear lipstick? Oh, was that to me? No, that was to you. Um, nice heels, Steph. So, but so this woman who couldn't, you couldn't say boo to a mouse, has no problem, you know, coming storming in with uh, with these kinds of criticisms. And of course, if you tried to pull the same stuff with her that she pulled with you, uh, it would not not go over very well, right? Oh yeah. Right, and also, also, women do. I mean, women are highly critical of men. I mean, not all women, but in general, I'd say women are a lot more critical of men. Can you tell me what you mean? Oh, I mean, that's just. It's just maybe it's not true. It's just a complaint that I hear a lot from men is that the women that they get involved with. Um, have a tendency to over criticize, but if we're saying that you know women tend to be more sensitive to criticism than men, it's it's interesting that a lot of them will start to criticize everything the man does. I 
I kind of get both spectrums because I see both men and women individually in my office and I hear women criticizing men and men criticizing women. So I, um, to me, it seems like it happens both ways. But uh, I guess the question is, do, and again, this is, maybe there's no way to answer this. My impression is that women are more vocal in their criticisms of men than men are of their criticisms of women to each other. Right. So the, the, the traditional thing of the nag, right, whether it's true or not, it's still a cliche, which is worth looking at, which is that the man feels that he is criticized by the woman a lot. Um, and he will complain about his wife's nagging. But if you were to look at the complaints flying back and forth directly to each other, that it would be more of the uh, woman towards the man. Um, I, I really couldn't comment. I, again, when I do couples therapy, I get criticisms from both uh, parties to each other. So um, I, I don't know if that's what you're referring to. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this uh, I, I found, I mean, when I was in my other relationships before I got married, I found that uh, certainly women had, oh, no shortage of criticism <laughs> towards me. Um, but I found that, uh, uh, I would certainly complain sometimes to my friends about my girlfriend's complaints towards me or about me that, that she would voice directly to me. And I'm not trying to extrapolate from my experience, but it's just, it was common enough with other relationships that I thought it was worth mentioning, but I would not, you know, it's your thing. Like the, the woman could be saying, and another thing, you know, <laughs> and go on and on for an hour. And then you'd respond with a criticism or two of, something and it was like we're not talking about me we're talking about like you you simply couldn't right it was like a one-way street but again that might just be me um if it's not the case with with people you've seen or known then uh, we won't uh, won't continue with it unless other people have had the same experience i think um i think what i see a lot of is uh, where somebody will lodge a complaint and the other person will defend and then uh and then attack back so there's a lot of uh back and forth in terms of attacking each other so no, it's not one more than the other. No, not, not, not in my, again, not in my professional experience. Yeah, it's, it's interesting then, then why that would be such a cliche because you do hear a lot about, um, there, there are jokes about how, how women just, just want to change men and that sort of thing. They just, they just want to find the right man t that they can change and, you know, that can be their sort of project and that. You know, that sort of thing. Women complain, again, again, my, in terms of my, my experience and talking to a lot of uh, men and women individually as well as with in terms of couples, women will complain that their, their, um, their husbands or their boyfriends don't do certain things or don't behave in certain ways. Um, and uh, oh, where was I going with this? The, the kinds of criticisms that men have about women are that, God, she's so moody, uh, nothing's ever good enough for her. Uh, oh, hi, sorry about that. Got crashed on the server. Sorry, if you could just mute if you're not talking, please. So um, we were just talking about how uh, uh, it turned out that uh, Christina was, in fact... Um, agreeing with me. Uh, and so what I sort of meant by that was um, 
that uh, uh, the, the, the women, the men are complaining that the women are complaining, right? She's moody. She gets mad. She criticizes me. She, she gets upset. Uh, whereas the, the women have specific complaints about behavior, but the men have general complaints about mood resulting in complaints from the women. So that was just, uh, uh, I just wanted to point out that, uh, You're right. that, oh, one, one more time. Sorry. You only oh, one. Oh, so close. <laughs> <laughs> so close. So close. Anyway, sorry. Uh, please continue. I'll, I'll add a few more people in, but uh, I just wanted to sort of mention that. Um, but maybe we could go back to this question of of why women are, are more sensitive to criticism. Right. Um, I just have an idea. Going back to the Stone Age. <laughs> um, you often have like a circle of uh, women raising children. Maybe it is it has an origin there somewhere, and this is why you uh, or women tend to compromise a lot just to remain the circle of women who help each other raising children. Um, I think it's because uh, criticism can equal ostracism and if you're a woman with a child then ostracism can equal basically the death of both of you so maybe that's why just to add a little something here I mean I've certainly heard and, and I appreciate the anthropological arguments as to why women are a certain way the reason that that is tough to maintain is that, of course, women for, and rightly so, for five or six generations have been saying to men, you need to outgrow your biological conditioning, right? You need to reduce your aggression. You need to get in touch with your feelings. You need to be more expressive about your emotions and so on. So if we do answer the question as to why women are sensitive to criticism, and I think the ideas are great, it doesn't explain why it hasn't been part of that outgrowing uh, biology, if that makes sense. Because women have, women have said, and rightly so, to men, you should uh, not judge a woman by her appearance alone, though, of course, men have biological cues, as women do, which would lead us to evaluate a woman's attractiveness by physical appearance alone. But we're supposed to grow beyond that, and men are usually naturally more reticent or hesitant to express emotions, to appear low status relative to other men. And all of those have biological roots and causes, but, or maybe it's just men's job to do for women what women did for men, which is to say, you need to outgrow these biological causes or these uh, historical uh, developments or, or what was optimal in the past uh, is no longer optimal. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I mean, I, I've never thought of it that way. It is true. I mean, if you if you listen to feminists, that they they'll criticize men for for being you know sort of of cavemen. But when we talk about the predispositions of women, naturally, it's supposed to it's supposed to protect them from any sort of criticisms for being lesser in, in this or that area. So it, it's. It's pretty hypocritical. 
Unless, of course, women can't see it for themselves and need men to point it out, in which case it's kind of weaselly for the men to say, um, I'm not going to call you on the biological adaptations which are no longer optimal, even though uh, women have successfully. And I think feminism has been very helpful, hugely helpful in giving men a richer and deeper emotional life. But if in the same way men are not confronting this, quote, fragility and lack of ability to be criticized of women, then we're not not returning the, the difficult favor, if that makes any sense. Oh, it totally makes sense, but it helps to understand um, why there is this fear of criticism among women. And I was just assuming. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do the women on this call feel in the face of, of criticism? Is there a way of being criticized that is, I mean, obviously there are some ways of, are there any ways in, which, in common that would be more helpful to be criticized on, or, or what is the feeling that comes up when uh, when criticisms arise? For me, it's um, disapproval is pretty scary, I guess. Uh, that's one of one of my biggest fears is uh, disapproval. So. And is it a kind of overwhelming, I mean, I think most people feel scared with criticism. Is it, is it an overwhelming fear? Is it something that is completely unbearable or is it something that is more manageable? Um, it is pretty overwhelming sometimes. And uh, it brings up a lot of uh, self-criticism and self-attack and stuff like that. It's quite isolating. And, yeah, fear for me. Uh, uh, isolating in what way? Well, of course, if you have a different opinion than everybody else. And... Um, this is the case for me most of the times. And sometimes if you remain in uh, your position, they get um, curious and ask questions, but sometimes they don't. Well, uh, just the way it is. For me, um, I, I always struggled in the past with trying to see that a criticism of behavior was different than a rejection of the person. I mean, I think I always conflated the two. So um, any kind of criticism would feel like a complete, total rejection of, of me. Um, but I def yeah, so there is definitely, I'm definitely uncomfortable with criticism a lot of the time. But being criticized by the people at FDR or... I have experienced that much differently than criticism in the past because it see it always comes across as being very helpful and like um, there is a sort of respect in it. Like if somebody is criticizing you, then it's sort of, it's sort of implicit that they believe you can change. So um, I think that's sort of been a new development in the way I respond to criticism. But in the past, it did, it definitely felt like I was being totally rejected. 
And do you think that this is behavior that you experienced as a result of feeling criticized or being criticized? Or is this a behavior that you saw modeled uh, in your mothers or other adult women if they were ever criticized? Oh, I mean, yeah, it was definitely modeled that way. Yeah, I mean, if if anyone ever criticized my mother, she would just completely wither. And um, there would be there would be this this guilting aspect to it uh, because she she would treat it as if you were reject, rejecting her like as a mother or as a wife or that sort of thing. So yeah, it definitely was modeled for me. Yeah, there's a kind of and I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but there's a kind of hyper taking it personally that I have uh, experienced when criticizing women, not not the women in this conversation, but but sort of in the past. And I'm sure that had something to do with me as well. But it's uh, like any criticism causes a massive self attack, which you're then responsible for and must be punished for in a way. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely how it is. It's It's really manipulative. But I still don't think we figured out why. Well, um, a pattern I've noticed is uh, when you criticize women, a lot of them tend to be like, um, "Well, what about this and this and this that I that I do for you and stuff like that?" Like, um, you know, I do so much for you, so you have no right to criticize me and stuff like that. I got that a lot too, yes. I think it's a kind of martyr complex that someone was talking about in the chat room. And it is a very sad thing because it actually makes the generosity not feel generous, right? Like It's like, I have done all these things for you, and therefore you can't criticize me. It's like, well, then you kind of did these things so I couldn't criticize you, not for me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, exactly. And I, th- I think the reason I think this is such an important topic is that, of course, we as a philosophical movement are doing a lot of criticisms in the world. And if we can't find a way to get through this barrier of criticizing women, then uh, we'll, we'll still win, but it will take a few more generations, to say the least. Yeah, that sounds like a really good point. Yeah, it's true. And the, the really terrible, sorry, the last thing I'll say, the really terrible thing, of course, is that when we look at some of the, the defu confrontations that have occurred, or rather when, when the child is sitting down to talk to his or her parents, uh, fundamentally what is happening, and it's not just, of course, the mothers here, but fundamentally what is happening is the child is attempting to bring a criticism to bear on the family. And it turns out that the avoidance of criticism is stronger even than the parent-child bond, which is truly mind-blowing when you think about it. Wow. Yeah, it really is. So, I mean, a question I would ask is, is there a way that... um, you've sort of been able to evolve your, your response to criticism as a woman. Is there a way that people have criticized you in the past that has worked better or, or felt more 
bearable or helpful in the past than other ways? Um, or is it, or is it just something that is a problem with the woman herself and not the person doing the criticizing or is it both? Sorry, just from a man's perspective, if you do have a criticism you want to bring to bear on a woman, and this is true for just about any woman, either get a Brad Pitt or George Clooney to do it, and uh, I, th I think you're sad. But other than that, you're doomed. <laughs> I would say it's um, the problem of the woman who gets criticized. I just can say it for myself, and it's important who criticizes you. Um, I had to learn that a lot, that if people I don't value start criticizing me, um, it doesn't have such an effect anymore, but it did in the past. And it's just something you have to learn and figure out. I don't know, is it the same for somebody else too? I think it is important at first to get surrounded by people that you know are going to act in your interest um, because that becomes a lot more bearable if, if somebody has proven to you that they're going to they're going to act in your interest and they criticize you um, I mean that, right. that sort of makes yeah. you really want to listen you know that's a good point the interest yeah I think that one of the big differences in my relationship was um, that, that Christina was criticizable in a way that I had never experienced a woman being criticizable before. Now, this is not to say that I have all these men who were really open to being criticized, but I mean, just in terms of, of romantic relationships, uh, she was correctable or criticizable. And I, I was more gentle, of course, because I was older, but... Um, uh, she was, uh, when we first began talking about, for instance, the existence of God uh, and, and things like that, uh, because of your scientific training, I think, uh, sorry, speaking to Christine, because of your scientific training, I think that had a lot to do with that, because science is all about self-criticism, comparison to logic and to reality, uh, and of course, because of your psychological training, which is really about bringing people into reality and reducing the power of mythology, I think that you had, and, and of course, because you have self-criticism that is not self-attack, which is a really, like, you, it's important to criticize yourself without being abusive, right? So you can say to a scientist, your theory is wrong, but you can't reasonably say to a scientist, you're an idiot, right? Because the, the first one is a correction and the second one is an abuse. And moving from uh, self, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we've worked a lot lately on self-attack is that if people do self-attack, you can't criticize them because all you do is like all they have is one. You either go along with them or you pull a pin and a nuclear bomb goes off. There's no sort of middle ground. And so uh, working to undo the concept or the problem or the habit of self-attack has been pretty essential. And I don't think that you had that self-attack thing that was really strong. You've had it a little bit, as we both have, but uh, you could see reason and evidence uh, on a variety of levels. Uh, now, it took it took longer for me to gain credibility within our relationship um, as far as the efficiency goes of trusting the other person that they're not manipulating you, that it's not uh, a scar tissue from their past that's setting them off, but that they are perceiving something important and accurate emotionally in the moment. Stuff that you can't prove so logistically, but something feels odd about this interaction in our relationship. It took longer for that to occur within our relationship, but um, it's certainly 
uh, with regards to comparing your thoughts to reason and your theories to evidence, you were uh, great up front. No, and I would say that this goes back to the comment that the ladies were just making about, um, you know, that you, you, I knew that you had my best interest in mind and uh, that trust was fundamental. And I was, I was striving to achieve connection, not dominance, right? So I didn't, uh, if I felt like I was uh, leveled down, we would talk about it and we would go through that process. But I was really, uh, what, what I criticized was what I perceived as distance between us. So I, I was always trying to get us to connect, not to get you to do something. Uh, and I think that that made a big difference. But yeah, certainly if, if, if we can't undo the self-attacks that people have, and we're talking more specifically about women at the moment, which I think is really important. If we can't undo the self-attacks, we can't reason with them philosophically because the moment we attempt to correct or criticize, which is fundamental to philosophy, they're just going to go off uh, um, nutty and not listen. And uh, so it is a real challenge to undo this self-attack. And that's part of why we work on the MECO system, right? We work on the MECO system so that we can identify and dismantle the self-critic in others, in ourselves first and then in others so that we can actually turn the volume of crazy down to actually get reason across, which is, which is sometimes like shouting across a Metallica concert, <laughs> it seems like. But, um, so I, I, think, I think that uh, difference is the degree to which we can undo self-attack is the degree to which we can be receptive to positive criticism. Yeah, I think that's very true. But as for as for why why women in particular have such a hard time with it, I mean, that's I mean, I really can't think of an answer right now, but it certainly is an important question. Not to jump in, but if there's a pause, the other thing that is um uh is essential, I think in in the question of self-attack, um we we I mean, if you if we look at our relationship with ourselves is similar to a relationship within a group, which is the idea behind the ecosystem. Then we know pretty much for sure that somebody who is attacked, like a child who is attacked by a mother uh, regularly, does not have a bond, a strong bond with the mother. In fact, the bond is very precarious and very weak. And self-attack is the same issue, that there is a lack of bond and trust within the self. Uh, and a kind of savaging of the self. It's like you spend your whole life keeping a biting, feral, uh, um, a rabid Tasmanian devil at arm's length. And so uh, trying to, to help people uh, to, to recognize the fragility of their relationships is really important. Like you can't get somebody to give up God if he doesn't understand that God is the fear of other people. Right, because all he'll do is talk you round and round and round intellectually. It's the same thing is true of nihilism and determinism and agnosticism, which is all around fear. They're all fear-based philosophies. Uh, or I, I think with uh, a, a determinism, it's more shame-based. We'll talk about that another time. But um, uh, if, if p- people won't give up God, if the real reason that they conform to God is a fear of attack by their peer group, right? So getting to, if once they understand the fragility of their relationships, they can then understand why they believe what they believe and they can work to undo the emotional fear of that very thin and very unstable bond, which is really only maintained through conformity and self-denial. Uh, and so with um, uh, the, 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 the strength of your relationship to yourself, the strength of your ability to absorb your own criticisms, uh, is strengthening 
that bond is really important. And you cannot have this, the fundamental issue about reviewing your relationships. You cannot have a stronger bond with yourself than you have with those around you. You simply cannot, right? A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. You can never have more self-esteem than the respect of the least respectful person around you, right? You can never have a stronger relationship with yourself than other people have towards you. And so if you have all these people around you or any people around you who don't treat you with respect, who don't have a strong and committed bond to you, which doesn't mean acting perfectly. We all understand that. But that's why improving your relationships is fundamental to improving your relationship with yourself because we can never be stronger with ourselves than we are with our relationships around us. And so fixing your relationships allows you to fix yourself, which allows you to accept criticism, which allows you to improve and become better. So uh, this is all of the the (laughs) nefarious maze that philosophy, psychology, men and women, society as a whole has been unable to navigate before. They either just talk about the intellectual stuff and forget about the emotional stuff or they talk about the emotional stuff and go round and round in circles about experience without reason. Um, But the amount of work that has to be done to dismantle this bomb of repetitive self-denial and self-attack, is re- it's really complicated, which we should be damn happy it is, right? Because, because if it wasn't really complicated, then it would make no sense as to why it hadn't been done yet. But, but those are all the kinds of things that I think are really, really important. And I, I think what Christina said at the beginning uh, has just come back to me now, where she said that if you criticize a woman, uh, everything, uh, for a lot of women, and this is true of men too, but just talk about women, a lot of it will cause them to have to reassess everything, right? Because like, okay, so if you criticize a woman and she accepts the criticism, then it means that she has a stronger relationship with herself and she's able to accept her own criticisms. But that's going to highlight the weaker relationships or the less positive and more destructive or abusive relationship she has around her. And that's why people stay in this self-attack, right? Because as soon as you stop self-attacking, you have to fix your relationships, right? Because it's all intertwined, right? Can't have a stronger, we can't have a stronger, more beneficial relationship with ourselves than other people have with us. Otherwise, it highlights and you have to change. And so I think that this slippery slope that we've always talked about, you take one step down what you think is a stone staircase and it turns into a luge ice, <laughs> you know, supersonic death drop uh, tunnel. I think that's what people recognize and that's why they fight so hard uh, we're talking about women here, why women fight so hard to avoid that initial uh, criticism. Is there anything else that anyone wanted to talk about today? Do you know that sometimes um, it is months between getting peanut butter cookies for me? <laughs> Sorry, are we still on criticism? Sorry, go ahead. I interrupted someone. I apologize. Um, uh, I guess I'd just be interested in hearing about uh, people's experience of um, highly dominant and forceful women. Like, in my family the women ran absolutely everything and the men were just like, they were just like older children that had to be taken care of. And I was wondering if anyone else has kind of experienced that or had any theories on why that is or anything. 
I guess not. Would you like to hear the experience of a a, a weak man who has to be man- man- managed a lot with peanut butter cookies? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. Well, I mean, remember, of course, that um, uh, uh, what is it? I think it's like a third of of boys and two thirds of black boys now grow up without a father at all. I mean, uh, the experience of a lot of men is that it's a complete matriarchy. I mean, I, I, I completely remember being shocked at the idea of a patriarch. I've mentioned this before, but, you know, when I was a kid, the women ran everything, right? Because when you are uh, a single, when you're in a single parent family, you're often in cheaper housing. And so you're around a lot of other families that are single. And since women get most of the kids, or most women get kids in that kind of divorce, uh, I mean, all I knew for the most part, not all, but the vast majority of what I knew the people that I knew, the families that I was exposed to, were single-parent, mother-driven, mother-controlled, mother-dominated families. And then, of course, you go to school, and who's teaching kindergarten but all these women? And there were these distant male authority figures like a principal or whatever, but um, as far as I was concerned, for the first, I don't know, 10 years of my life or eight years of my life, with the minor exception of some aspects of boarding school, women ran the world. I mean, (laughs) there was some distant authority male figures but i never really interacted with them but uh, but women ran the world and uh, so uh, i i think that's something that people uh, often forget that that sort of early experience which most boys have to authority which is that uh, it's almost all uh, uh, female right and in um in my experience with my family the men were always like broken and had to be fixed like um one of my aunts the christian one she married a uh, a severe alcoholic and like turned him into ned flanders and stuff like that right and my my own stepdad was just completely empty and not there like I don't think I had a single conversation with him my entire childhood my but my mother was always present and always in your face and stuff like that I mean yeah that was certainly true of my mom as well that and my mom had a a big bag of tricks that she would even tell me about about how to manipulate and control men you know you sit on your lap you coo in their ear Wildly inappropriate stuff, of course, but uh, I certainly saw uh, women as, you know, the the um, the powers behind the throne, so to speak, that there's this myth that my mom had, which is not just my mom. Other people have it, too. Right. That that, uh, you know, uh, what is it that they said in uh, my big fat Greek wedding uh, that the uh, the man is the head of the family, but the woman is the neck and can turn the head any way she wants. And that uh, men are the sort of titular leaders, but the powers behind the throne, the, the people who really make things happen, who actually make all the decisions and, uh, you know, seduce or bamboozle the men into obeying them. Uh, this is the women, right? That it, the world really is a matriarchy. But, uh, you know, the uh, like the government is the power, but Barack Obama is the face uh, of it. Uh, and uh, the woman is the mother is the power. And the father is simply the the guy who sits on a horse like a like a military leader going nowhere while the women actually make the decisions and get things done. Uh, that was certainly a very strong uh, myth. And it's not just me who's experienced that. And I think that definitely came from, 
and, and that definitely came from from where I came from in terms of upbringing. And of course, I mean, um, when you when you grow up in a single parent household, it's it's the dad who is forced out, which of course is, is in a sense is an ultimate power play, right? It's like my mom and dad had a disagreement, and as I perceived it as a kid, my dad was kicked out, right? And of course, that doesn't exactly add to the stability of your bond with your mother. It's like, oh, so you got rid of dad, who's next? But um, I think that uh, aspect of things where uh, the, the women are dominant but are manipulative, shadowy, behind the thrones kinds of uh, 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 puppet masters, uh, mistresses, I guess, is a pretty strong myth for a lot of people. And, and it took me some time to to confront and, and overcome that myth that uh, if you get involved with a woman, uh, she kind of slithers into your unconscious and becomes your puppet mistress and so on. And you then uh, you can't make decisions on your own. And, you know, you, you have to always please, please implicate her and she's always going to be manipulating you with her moods and so on. All of that kind of creepy female spider brain stuff uh, I really had to work to to overcome. Uh, and, 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 and then I got married. <laughs> Yeah, we make a joke actually about uh, I call Christina the wifelet because she's relatively compact or was, and, <laughs> and I talk about my my inner my inner wifelet, right? Like, so if if I'm taking my clothes off and there's two laundry bins, right, for for coloreds and whites like the South, and um, uh, so I'm like, if my wife's if if Christina's in the room, I'll make make sure to sort it, right? And I say, I'm sorting, I'm sorting. And if she's not in there, I'll just say, my inner wife that told me to do it, and you know, sit there with her finger wagging at me and so on. Uh, but um, anyway, that was, I just thought it was a funny story. But let me get back to something serious now. Someone said thanks for sharing, but I don't think they meant it. <laughs> and uh, the the men that I saw when I was growing up. It we're all almost all uh, weak and pitiful, uh, and uh, it took me a long time to get over my disgust for adult men. Uh, I just I I saw them. Uh, of course, my mom had a, was very attractive and and slender and so on. So my mom had a series of boyfriends, all of whom were pitiful specimens, as you can imagine. They were they were dating my mom, right? So uh, all I saw was uh, pitiful. And my my dad has this theory, you know, that uh, you know when he retired, he he lost his manhood because. The the home is the woman's domain and work is the man's domain. And then you move into the woman's domain and you don't have your authority anymore. All she does is give you a list of things to do and you just run around like her errand boy and, and so on. So, I, you know, I come by that uh, uh, fear of a woman's authority somewhat honestly. And it de- it definitely took some time uh, to, to overcome that. And it is really it's really hard to find examples of men who are strong and confident and positive and loved. Uh, uh, now, you could say it's hard to find examples of positive women as well, but as far as men goes, uh, it was really, really tough to find uh, role models, and I, I sort of gave up when I was in my teens. Right. Um, all the men in my life, I guess, were just like empty voids of nothing and I think that's probably uh, probably went a long way to why I became such a raging feminist when I was like 15 or something. So just all the men in my life were so weak. Right, right. And I think it has been hard, a masculinity. We can have another conversation maybe about masculinity, but it 
it definitely has. Uh, there has been a rewriting of manhood, which has left a lot of men very, very adrift uh, because they got one template from their fathers and another expectation from their spouses. And uh, it uh, I just uh, the, to me, most men are just kind of weak and gross uh, and uh, not honest and weaselly and shallow. I mean, but that's, you know, that's just my uh, my feminism, I guess. I mean, if I had to, if I had to quantify idiot, stupid, abusive communications that I get, it's like 95% men. And that's just the kind, like the YouTube stuff and the stuff that I get in my inbox and so on. Uh, all that nasty, petty, vicious, ratty kind of stuff. That, that to me, that's all men. And then not just to me, but pretty objectively, uh, you can see. And that, and uh, I just find women to be more reasonable, more curious if, if you're gentle and curious yourself. And uh, it, it's been really hard for me to find um, to find respect for men. And uh, but of course, I really had to. Uh, yeah, and the men are trolls too, right? Men, men on the internet uh, are, are trolls, and we just don't get female trolls, right? I mean, it's uh, it's 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 a hundred percent, right? So um, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that it is it is hard to find um, an example of respectful manhood. I mean, as it is, I think as we've been saying, it's hard to find an example of respectful femininity as well. All right. Uh, well, sorry, just to turn it back to you, Colleen, was there anything else you wanted to add or is there anything else that people wanted to add uh, as a result of this call? Um, there was nothing else that I wanted to add. If anyone else had anything else they wanted to talk about? Um, no, I, I don't have anything on my mind right now. But we, you know, I would like to do this again. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, somebody said that uh, they'd like to do a men's show. Uh, I think that would be great. Um, obviously, we'll need um, top hats and assless chaps to really pull that off, but I'm sure we'll be able to one way or another. It'll mostly be a webcam, and it will be broadcasted to everyone who doesn't donate. Um, so uh, I guess uh, check later tonight. Again, the, the podcast awards are uh, being uh, announced tonight, the winners, uh, just to, to balance and manage everybody's expectations. The odds of us winning are terrifically slim. That doesn't mean that it wasn't worth entering and it wasn't worth voting. But uh, remember, the, our good friend Grammar Girl has been on Oprah, has been written up in the New York Times and the New York Post and uh, has been on CNN and has been on Larry King. And I just – we're not quite there yet, <laughs> right? Uh, so – um, uh, so, uh, it's, you know, we, we've got a long way to go, uh, in order to get that kind of exposure, but the work that we're doing quality work, quality conversations like this one, where everybody's just done fantastically well and, and kudos, especially to you, Colleen, for, um, you know, starting it off and managing it uh, just beautifully. I thought you did a fantastic job. Uh, and uh, yes, we should definitely do this again, but, um, thank you everybody uh, so much and particularly the women, uh, for some absolutely wonderful uh, thoughts uh, and uh, and uh, a truly wonderful conversation, and absolutely uh, we will uh, we will be uh, all over this again. So, have a wonderful evening, everyone, and we will talk to you soon.